Welcome to Black Lizard Marks. I'm Spencer. I'm Nick. And we are continuing today where we left off last week or two weeks ago. I believe it was two weeks ago. Episode six. It was actually longer than that. Was it really? Yeah, I think Time it was close class. to a month. Uh, episode six, The Shit That Is Life. And today we are doing part two. Spencer and I just refreshed our memory as to where we left off last week. And what that really means is Nick played the last two minutes. And I said, wait, can you rewind that? Wait, can you rewind that again? And I think I only requested like four rewinds. So it was about four. Yeah. But uh, today we're continuing our discussion of what to do when your beliefs about the world are presumably true and still sucky. And we left off last week talking about how we didn't choose to be alive, nor did we choose anything about the world that we were born into born into um and non-existence is nothing and existence sometimes has cool stuff in it so i guess you might as well not kill yourself and uh i saw an interesting meme today um this was actually on elon musk's twitter and for the audience that doesn't know um another one of my idols next to sam harris would be elon musk and um he posted a picture of Sonic the Hedgehog and said, uh, new MIT study finds that Sonic the Hedgehog has a statistical probability of living in a simulation. And <laughs> it, was, uh, it was sort of just making fun of um, what Elon Musk says all the time, which is that we indeed are probably living in a simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. Elon Musk is one of the most successful people in the world. He's doing some of the most... Uh, groundbreaking scientific and space explorative research, and yet he believes we're living in a simulation, which necessarily means determinism, uh, or at least that we're not the author of our own thoughts, and yet he's plugging along, uh, doing some of the coolest stuff we've ever seen. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, that clearly you can have beliefs about the world that are less than cool, uh, less than happy, and still be a billionaire or still go to space. Yeah. It's a, I had, as you're talking, um, I was listening and then you said, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. So I stopped listening and started thinking about <laughs> what I would then respond to. Everything after that wasn't important. So no, good. Obviously not. Well, it actually <laughs> was really important and I had kind of wound up my response and then you said the last sentence, which has totally changed my response. Uh, so I'll give, I'll give my new response and then we can rewind to the old one. Okay. So you made the statement that when we look at Elon Musk, he has this view of the world which is not happy. And I know that that wasn't like a super well thought through sentence, but it was kind of flippant. Uh, But at the same time, I think that it points to something deeper, which I've been considering with with many different people over the last few weeks from our previous conversation. It's been something I've been considering for years, but I've had more conversations on it recently, which is if you look at life and you say that there is no ultimate meaning to life, then the initial reaction for most people is like nihilism and depression. But the interest, I was having a conversation with a friend and he said, why is that our instantaneous response? And I like put together some answer about, well, it's bred into us as humans, you know, genetically, and here's some social reasons and all these other reasons. And he goes, but if it's truly meaningless, then the truth of that perception that this is a negative perception is just as true and meaningful as that a meaningless life is the best life that you could live. If both are foundless, 
then it's our choice when we wake up each morning right. to well, choice. We'll skip sure. that. Our, yeah. our choice each morning <laughs> to decide which way we want to perceive the world. So we can yeah. either wake up and perceive it as negative and we can, or wake up as perceive it as positive. And even though our base nature may interpret the raw data and preempt us towards one decision, we actually have override uh, at least some of that from yeah. a, like a prefrontal cortex side of our brain saying, okay, I understand that you are naturally inclined to do this. So my first thought would be just because there isn't a universal meaning behind something doesn't necessarily lead directly to uh, a depressed or bad or unhappy or not good state. It can just as easily almost lead to a positive state as being as well. As a fact, some some philosophers have stated um, and I was going to find them from the conversation I had, but I didn't bother to do that because right. why, why prepare for a podcast, uh, would say that actually it's much better to live a life which is meaningless because you're not only choosing which direction you want to live your life, being preemptive about that, but you also understand reality more. Yeah. And I, to me, that was a really important thing to hear. So the second part about that is, so what does Elon Musk do? It'd be really interesting to see if we can dig this up somewhere of what yeah. he's actually said on this topic. Uh, and I, so I'll take, I'll take his actions and I'll take the way that we've kind of set this up uh, at the beginning of the podcast that we didn't choose this. And so now we've kind of been dealt these cards, then we choose how to, to play the hand. And I think that when somebody looks at it just from a pragmatic standpoint, they say, these are the cards that I have. How will I choose to play these cards? I can either just like sit and pout in a corner or I can choose to play them to right. the best best of my ability, even if the game's totally meaningless. I'll give a last story. Please do. And this, I was uh, up late earlier this week and I had a friend over and we were talking and, and building things with our hands. And my brother walks out and he says, hey, I got this new game. I'd like to play this new game. Um, with you guys sometime and we said well why not now and he's like well it's 11 30 at night and we're like so what we don't have to get up before 6 a.m tomorrow let's play now <laughs> and so we sit down and play and i forget the name of this game but the general principle of the game it was it was a game almost mocking games so you could just pick up a card and the card would say something along the lines of you lose no you actually just lost lay down your hand and you're out of the game wow and sometimes you would pick up a card saying you won everybody else just lost or, <laughs> or sometimes the card you'd lay down a card that says if anybody else says the word you the rest of the game they've lost or all of these or play rock paper scissors anybody who throws throws scissors loses complete fiat yes and a lot of them uh had to do not only with winning and losing but a lot of them also had to do with like oh you think that i lost ha come again i actually didn't die and yeah. so it was a game mocking a game and yeah. we had a conversation after the end of a few rounds of this game about how the game has really no meaning to it whether you win or whether you lose has almost nothing to do with your skill level nothing to do with your your perception it is almost entirely dependent upon the cards which you are dealt and you pick up during the course of the round and when we were playing it with a larger group of people we found that the people who just said hey these are the cards i'm going to be dealt i'm going to have the most fun with it i'm going to make fun voices i'm going to get into character i'm going to make fun of other people even if i lose this game um had in, just enjoyed it even if they had a sucky hand but the yeah. people who were like dead set Right. winning the game. trying to win. Yeah, they were just miserable the entire time. Right. And, and their misery just kind of flowed over and made other people miserable and just made me laugh. So Wow, that's that's a very profound card game. Yes, it was. And I have a feeling that the creators were not unaware of how profound that is. I don't know. 
I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe they just accidentally stumbled across a philosophical truth on that. Yeah. But um, I, I think that's really interesting. And it, I was thinking about a couple of things while you were saying that, and one of them was um, how. I mean, we've talked, you and I personally have talked a lot about how resistance is the cause of our suffering and really pain is, is just ancillary. And I've um, really been putting that into practice the past couple of weeks and found how true that that really is, mm -hmm. that um, suffering is resistance and you remove resistance and you can deal with most pain. Um, and that takes a certain amount of mindfulness to, to remain unresistant mm -hmm. to, to the pain, but um, I think also unresistant to truths that we might not like are very, it, it is, um, removes a lot of suffering as well. So, um, you know, you can be resistant to nihilism, to the truth of existential nihilism, and that can cause, I think that is the cause of despair mm -hmm. and depression, not the fact that it's true. I don't, it, yes and no in that I think there are two sides to that coin. I was listening to a Dharma talk this morning and the speaker was giving a lot of really interesting information, but he was talking about the three forms of suffering. And there were there were really three major aspects. So one of them is like physical pain. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is like self-imposed psychological pain that, you know, I'm going to wake up this morning, it's going to be a bad day, or, you know, so-and-so doesn't like me, even though that might not line up with reality, but it's like self-imposed psychological pain. And the third category is this pain that is uh, wishing that what is now mm -hmm. was different. Right. And it goes a lot deeper than that. But I think that when you look at the idea of meaninglessness, you have both of those types of pains. One being that I, the way I see the world and the way that the world actually is doesn't line up and that friction causes pain. Right. But I think that final one also causes pain in that we want it to be different. And while I certainly would like there to be a meaning to the world, I don't know that my that desire causes all of the friction, causes all the pain. I think it contributes to some, mm -hmm. but I think that there's also pain inherent within the system. Can there be pain inherent with this, within a system, though? I, so I think that question depends heavily on how you define the word pain. Right. Well, I think pain like beauty requires a subject that manifests it, you know, so like a, th a thorn on a rose isn't painful. Mm -hmm. It's painful when a person with nerve endings runs into it. Right. You know? um, well, and I would say that it even gets a little more difficult than that because there are pleasurable versions of pain. And I think you see these and three really major. So when you work out, you'll be in sure. pain, but it's pleasurable. For different religious ceremonies, pain is seen as very pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And I think in, even in some, um, like uh, eating super hot food, so people... Right. And so... I, I wouldn't say pleasurable. I'd say maybe edifying because I don't think there's... That pleasure and pain can coexist at the same time um, in the same thing. I think they are opposites, but... I so think that they can be in the same space at the same time. I, I, and maybe it's a looser definition of pleasure than what I'm associating with. Um, so, I'm thinking like dopamine versus cortisol right now. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't reduce all of pain and pleasure to neurochemical understandings of it. Uh, because I think that they're 
there's a greater understanding of pain and pleasure than one individual neurochemical sure playing into that i would say that like i like doing yoga i'll I was doing a yin practice the other day, which is a very slow form with a lot of long holding poses. And the idea is to open connective tissue. And so you start in these poses and you'll be in the pose for like between five and 10 minutes. So we were in a pose, minute one was okay, minute two was painful, but minute two, like minute three through minute seven was very painful. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that my hips are like in excruciating pain, uh, that I like, it's all taking all that I have to not just twitch out of the movement. Like I have to actively stay engaged to not let my body just move out of the pose because if I don't engage, my body will just as a defensive mechanism move out of the pose. I, I'm in pain, but I'm still enjoying pleasure at the same time. And that like, I know I'm well aware that this is causing physical pain, but I also am enjoying knowing that I'm making progress, that I'm exerting self-control so I think that they can coexist at the same time, but that might be a rabbit hole we don't need to run down. Yeah, I, I, th I think so, because my mind's already running around <laughs> that one a little bit. So so backtracking a little bit on the sort of aspect of being non-resistant to a truth that mm -hmm. we don't like, um, you know, whether it's inherent or it's our own response to it, I think that, eh, you know, it sounds like a necessary discussion because... In my personal opinion, whether it's determinism or it's existential nihilism, that true freedom is found, and, and this is, I think, so interesting, especially in the face of determinism, that uh, if you really want freedom, you have to be completely non-resistant to the fact that you're not free. And I think that people who believe in libertarian free will are the ones who are actually not free. And I think the people that are under this impression that they have complete control over any situation or over the thoughts in their head are the ones that are living under the heaviest illusion. Um, and I personally have found, because the, the immediate reaction when discovering determinism to be true or existential nihilism is a feeling of loss of control and manic depression. And I think becoming, accepting both of those truths completely, for me at least, has been more liberating than trying to pretend like they're not or somehow be happy or okay that they're that they are true or, or, or do anything but just allow them to be as as they are yeah i think that there's a lot of wisdom in that at the same time the term like freedom and liberation i don't know are two things which are super high on my priority list to achieve uh i understand they are they're not they're not they're not and when I look at others, I think that there might be some truth in that to be truly free, you have to understand that you're not truly free. And I would actually probably edit that to say, to be more free, you need to right. understand that you're not truly free. Right. At the same time, for me at this point in my life, the question of whether or not I'm free or not free or liberated or not liberated isn't a huge concern um, for me. I think I was writing writing down some thoughts the other day and I said that I actually wanted to live a life dependent upon others. Mm. So, um, and wow. Yeah. Uh, risky, ain't it? <laughs> <laughs> and not only dependent upon others, but dependent upon the systems around me, um, my internal structure and the structure of my belief system. I don't want to separate myself from that because I think that separates and causes a deeper 
isolation. So while I agree mm. with you, in principle, I don't agree. I may not agree to the same level in value. Where now? How did you get to that point? You know, when I when I think about taking that leap, mm-hmm. and that to me is a a step in the direction of sort of disassociation with self. Mm-hmm. Um, relying on others usually seems, you know, in, in the society's eyes, it's just like mooching. But mm-hmm. in actuality, I think a strong ego, not in the colloquial sense of ego, but in the, for our listeners, in the, in the more um, Buddhist sense of the word, the self, a very, very strong ego comes from thinking that you you are completely self-reliant. So how did you get to that point where you, you can sort of surrender that hold on, on yourself and on everything that that entails and say, sure, I'll, I'll rely on other people to get here on time to make sure this is okay? I think that for me, I, you, you make it sound like I've achieved that. And I think that it's a, a, a dot bullet point on a sticky note. And a concept which I have in my head, not right. something which I've achieved. Well, I mean, just thinking about it for me is terrifying. So <laughs> you've achieved moving past that and writing it down. I didn't say that. I wasn't terrified of it. Okay. All right. I just said that I wrote it down. Yeah. I think I was considering, I was meditating the other day, I was considering to myself you know, the different levels which I experienced. And for me, there's really three really clear levels. And so you have like the physical world, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling. Right. So in pain in the sense of, um, I'm getting like punched or I'm, I'm uncomfortable in this way. And then also reliance in the way like I'm sitting on a chair, I'm relying on that chair. I'll drive a car, I'll rely on that car. I'll walk on a bridge, I'll rely on that bridge. We do, we rely on physical things mm-hmm. all of the live long day. Right, right. I think there is a story which I love telling. The super simple version of it is, is a fellow wanted to build himself a toaster without the help of any other human. And he found the simplest toaster he could. I believe it had 18 parts to it. Hmm. And so he tried to go and replicate this and got nowhere close. And as you listen to the documentation of how he got there, you're like, you're asking that person for help. Yeah. Uh, there's no way you're ever close to that. So our interaction, especially in Western society with the external world, is reliance on others, whether or not we understand it. I drive and I expect people not to run into me. The second level is reliance on kind of thought patterns and This, for me, is one of the more difficult ones, which is I wake up in the morning and I say I'm going to leave my front door and actually this starts before I get out of bed. I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to start engaging with reality, um, whether or not I want to. And when I make this move, I am reliant that the way that I am perceiving and processing the world is correct. It corresponds to reality in some levels and that the way that others are perceiving and processing the world corresponds to their reality and my reality in some way, which is, which is helpful in some sense of the word. And in addition to all of that, when I go out into the world, I can either be the type of person who tries to isolate themselves and say, it's totally dependent on me. I can make it happen. And I see those people. I do not want to become one of those people. They're, they're the the preppers, they are the extreme libertarians, they right. are the people who want to isolate, cut themselves off from the world. I don't see them making a meaningful change in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't see them making the world a better place. And I think they live out of a place of fear and not out of a place of prosperity. 
Uh, so, so that's the kind of the second level. And then the third level is everything which happens to us, which we can't put into a word or a picture. When we say, like, I have a feeling, and we can't put that feeling into words. It's in, in my notes, it's what I call the form world from Plato's idea of the forms. So some things that are so perfect, uh, you just can't embody them in yeah. a conversation or in a manifestation in some way. And everything is trying to get at what those forms are. Right. In, in in that way, I find that it, this, uh, it's so annoying to hear, but I, I hear when people talk about those level of forms, they're saying, like, the base nature is love. And I think that when they say the word love, they're talking about love in the form sense of love, not in any of those other, other two levels of love. Mm-hmm. In that, like, I am open and reliant upon others. I value and am valued by others. And that when... When I look at that, I say that those are the types of things that I want to embody, which means that I am going to live a life dependent on others, which also means that I'm going to live a life full of ongoing pain experiences. Yeah, very much so, yes. yes. Interesting. Um, let's let's bring this back a little bit to uh, the discussion of we have a belief, we dislike the outcome of a belief. And I think right there... That's something I want to talk about. Why would somebody dislike a belief system? Because in today's society, it is that's a very strange thing. If you dislike what you believe in, just change your beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, you change change your change your religion. You know, if you if you become an apostate, switch religions, uh, you know, move jobs, whatever it is, whatever suits your happiness, that's what you should be pursuing. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially belief systems because they're so easily just turned on and off. Um, you know, they're whatever's the most comfortable clothing to wear, that's the clothing that you put on. Um, and I think it takes a certain type of person, whether uh, imprudent or prudent, mm-hmm. to choose a belief based off of functionality and how it aligns with reality. So why might somebody dislike their belief and is that even a rational thing to do to dislike a belief uh, if it supposedly corresponds with reality i think a more skillful way of phrasing that would be dislike the outcome of a belief sure and i would say that it's it's a reasonable thing to do um, because what that belief brings you to isn't what you want uh, and it's just a mismatch of desires. Okay. But should should beliefs even have anything to do with desires? I think it's not a question of should, it's do. And yes, a belief. And I, I, I possess beliefs whether I want to or not. Right. I possess desires whether I want to or not. And they interact whether I want them to or not. Well, I think we have more control over it than that. Um, so... You know, the extirpation of desire, as found in a lot of Buddhist teachings, just, you know, removing all desire is freedom. I guess then you can believe whatever you want and there would be no friction. So the deep, I've been reading the Dharmapada recently, which is a combination of kind of like the highlights of Buddhist teaching. Um, there, The original um, texts are lost to history and there are many different versions of what the Buddha, Buddha, a current one said and this is just a combination of some of them and the more that i've been reading the more that i at least from my limited readings begin to under think that we understand the idea of the the death of desire as incorrect from our western idea and the idea is like i when i wake up in the morning i might desire uh, a bowl of ice cream 
And what a Westerner would say, well, a Buddhist would say to that is you need to kill off that desire. Mm -hmm. You need to make that desire go away. Live a life which will reduce that desire. Um, or so at the temple in Ann Arbor, uh, oftentimes people will sleep on, or some people will sleep on things which are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and that the idea behind that is to like uh, help myself understand that a comfortable sleeping is not needed and reduce that dependence on physical comfort. And while I think that is an interesting understanding, I think a more correct understanding is when I have that desire, not attaching myself to that desire, and that is a better understanding when we say a reducing um, desire. So when we look at, a, how back to the conversation, when we say, I have a belief, it interacts with my desires, I don't think the correct thing to do is say, and then it has an interaction, I don't think the correct thing to do is to like kill off the desire portion of that equation, try to live a life where I have few desires. Mm -hmm. I think rather the correct way to do that is to live a life with where I have desires, but then when the interaction happens, be mindful of that interaction happening and the most important part, when I value that interaction, when I determine how that affects me, do so intentionally. Because I'm not sure that you can not have beliefs. I'm not sure that you can not have desires. I think you could reduce them by like not participating in some behaviors. Uh, but I don't think that you can ever stop that natural like interaction between the two of them. So from what you say, it sounds like self-identification is the enemy, not a desire or a belief. And that when you identify with the desire and it doesn't correspond with the belief, then you fear the death of self. If you identify with the results of a belief and it doesn't correspond with your desires, then you fear the death of self. Uh, and so if you no longer identify with either the belief, the cause of, or the results of the belief or the desires themselves, then both can do whatever they want to each other and you are merely riding those waves. Of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that that's a relatively fair way to say it, and I think um, this is an like one of those form parts, which is I both identify and understand that I don't identify with that belief. I found that uh, oftentimes in a meditation course or when right. listening to other people instruct, it's you have like this kind of goal of hitting a moment where the I stops existing. Right. And I was, I was listening to uh, one of the teachers teach at the temple, and they were talking about how, sure, that could be a great place to reach where the eye stops existing, and you just kind of, like, get knocked into this trance state almost um, of this, you know, altered consciousness place. And at this, so that is, a, that is a fine thing. But at the same time, most of us don't, can't live in that state in the world. And what we could do instead is understand that I is a thing, but not hold on to that thing. So it's, it's, which has been really helpful for me to understand that when I'm trying to engage with the world, I don't need to kill off the idea of I. I don't mm -hmm. need to go get the I round up and spray it all around the I and get frustrated that the I isn't reducing. But rather I need to go, no, there is a me. I do exist. I am a person. Spencer is different than the matter around him and does exist independent in some fashion of others. And I don't have to be, it doesn't have to only be that as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. So my turn to ask the questions. Please do, yes. So when you look at the world, there's you hold different beliefs about the world and whether or not they line up is, is a whole other conversation. Right. 
And those beliefs have certain impacts on the way that you perceive the world. When you're going through the world and you stumble across on like a belief that you, a, a reality and a belief that you don't want to be true. Let's sure. make it like less existential. Like you wake up in the morning, you need to be somewhere at nine and you wake up at 8.55. Right. And so how is your mind going to process through that? And how do you think yeah. your mind should process through that specifically about how are you identifying with each one of those bits. I really am glad that you asked that question for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's a lot less ephemeral and our audience will be able to actually give a shit about what we're saying now. Um, that, that was good programming. We put the part yeah. they give a shit about in the middle of the program. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 30 minutes of nonsense. <laughs> now it gets good guys. Strap in. Here we go. Uh, because that often does happen to me where, um, I either wake up five minutes before or three hours after the appointment that I should have been at. And it's very important. It happened a couple of days ago. I had a very important neurologist appointment at 10 30 AM. I woke up at 12 30 AM or PM. Uh, and so that was not good. Mm -hmm. And it was, this is very apropos because, uh, my perspective on life has been changing rapidly over the past several weeks. Um, almost day-to-day -day change. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to think in a positive direction. Uh, I guess we'll see how it ends up. And that was a perfect case study because me oversleeping is not anything new, as my father so eloquently put it. Uh, I have missed more appointments in my short life than he has in the 50 years <laughs> of his existence, to give you some perspective. And my father's also a robot, so that's more perspective. But... Um, Watching my own mind in that in that morning, I, and I can't tell what is has been more effective, whether it's been the medication or whether it's been the study, the self-study with books. Um, but my body gave a response, the typical uh, elevated heart rate, mm -hmm. feeling of adrenaline. But my mind was almost completely calm. And I was just watching my body do this, but I, I was completely non-identified with that stress. I brushed my teeth. I, I went to the bathroom. I washed my face. I think I maybe even like straightened my bed sheets out, which is like, you know, you're so late. Why would you ever do anything like that? You just throw underwear on and walk out the door. And to just sort of watch myself no longer, I, react negatively to a negative situation. That's something you and I have talked about before too. Something bad happens and our immediate response is to make it worse by having a bad attitude about it, which is the, it's so naturally ingrained in us. You stub your toe, you swear, right? You get in a car crash, your day's ruined. And, and I was always just dumbfounded when I would watch one of my friends, Scott, who somebody would break his camera and he'd be like, ah, all right. And, and it's just a peculiar response, but I finally started to understand it. Like, that's the most reasonable thing to do in that situation. But on a deeper level, uh, to, to not identify with that negative situation has really been uh, liberating. So to finally bring home, to answer your question, you wake up at 8.55, your appointment's at 9. Uh, that's a that's a belief about the world, and it pretty surely conforms with reality. Um, resisting that belief 
I've found to be just the most immediate way to incur suffering, especially at eight in the morning. And I think that's why I say that resistance is the enemy here and self-identification is the enemy. So if you have a belief that you would dislike uh, the most intelligent or reasonable thing to do would be to open your arms wide and give it a big hug. Uh, and it might tear your face off, but trying to prevent it's just going to make you scared and miserable. Would you say, so this is a, this is an honest, not a, a question, which I hold not one of those, like I'll ask questions and I have set up answer already right. for it is when there's something happening that I don't like, and it might be a belief, an untrue belief about reality, or it might be a true belief about reality. It seems like I'm well aware that I, I can either resist that or I cannot resist that and still have a negative outcome because I don't think it's simply about not resisting, but I think it's about not resisting and not identifying with the consequences in a deep yeah. way. Uh, because I think some identification with consequences is a good idea. And then we'll spin back to that. And then the the level of how much do I embrace this? Because I it, the, the metaphor, which has been one of the most helpful metaphors I've heard this year, was given by Tara Brock, who's a meditation teacher I've been following for years. And she said, meditation is like sitting by a stream and you can either let your hand just drift in the stream, allowing the water to run by and appreciate the cool water dancing through your fingers, not wishing that more would come or not regretting that water has gone, but simply enjoying the ripples between your fingers. Or life can be, or meditation can be about thrashing around in the river, trying to constantly stop the dam from going anywhere or pull water back upstream that was good um, or pull water downstream instead of just enabling with it. Or it could be about trying to grasp what is there. And so when a moment of peace comes, grab it and just don't let it go and then grab another one and don't let it go. So when this negative thing comes along, is the appropriate reason you don't want to shove it away? Hmm. Do you want to pull it close or do you just want to let it be? Yeah, I, think, I think you just want to let it be. Um and because I'm so often late to things, I've had so much practice with this. So I think I'm becoming somewhat of an expert only in Nick's life <laughs> regarding this. Uh, most recently it was yesterday where um, my girlfriend and I had to be at, uh, we had a dinner plan with her mother and we had to be there at 445 and it was 425 and it was an hour away. And so we're leaving and... That means I have an hour in the car to either A, be miserable and hate traffic, hate my decisions, hate myself, and just be totally and completely uncomfortable for an hour. And, and it's just, I'm still reveling in my discovery of this, that you know I've lived so long not in this way. Or I can just choose to say, there is no way that this hour is going to become any shorter Maybe five minutes if I go 85 when I should be going 70. Maybe. But if I just simply accept that I am late, completely embrace that truth, believe it completely, acknowledge that people are unhappy with me, that I have screwed up, and, and accept it totally, and then not identify with 
that anxiety. So there's a difference between saying it doesn't exist, which I think is the unskillful thing to do, and then saying, yes, this exists, this is happening currently, I fucked up. And then allowing it to be and not saying, I am this anxiety. I am this stress. But there is stress, there is anxiety, there is lateness. That has been like the most liberating thing. And I think that's probably, I mean, and again, I, I'm not a Buddhist master here, but I think that that's, to my knowledge, the most skillful way to approach something like being late or having a belief about the world that you, you're not a fan of the outcome. You're not a fan of, of the fact that it's true, but it is. So how does that play out? How does that dance around with a living a functional world? In that I find that when I'm living a life of mindfulness and for what's a good example um i i am much like your father in the the robot sense of the word sure. i i rarely miss meetings i i do things on time under budget and there are there are a few times where that doesn't happen but there are occasions of course where it does and i think that the response you're describing is the appropriate response but i'm also thinking of situations, I don't know that I experienced this, but I see it happen in others, where they learn this technique of, well, maybe this is a better setup for it. I think part of the reason that we have this physical and psychological reaction to a something negative happening is as a reminder that this is not a good thing and should not happen. Mm -hmm. And if and it's essentially a a self-enforced punishment for bad behavior. If we're able to override this internal punishment tool, mm -hmm. it seems that some then don't learn, ever learn the lesson. Because an uh, example of this would be with, I know bunches of people who just live their life, I swear, an hour and a half behind everybody <laughs> else. You like be there at 11 and they're there at 1230 or at, and I think one reason they're able to get away with this is because if that happened to me, I would be crumpled in a ball somewhere if it yeah. happened for 10 years. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't yeah. do with that. But these people almost have like this flippancy about it in yeah. that it doesn't make a difference. So why, why really be there? And so how do those two things balance, I guess? How is it that you both mm -hmm. deactivate the punishment mechanism and ensure that the reason the mechanism existed is still enforced? I don't think that the reason the mechanism existed was a punishment mechanism. I think the reason that, I don't know if that sentence made sense. I don't think that we have this negative feeling, we'll just throw anxiety on there as a common example, that I'm late, I feel anxious because I'm late, and that that was some evolutionary reason because, you know, you gotta kill your bison on time. I don't think that that's what it's for. I think. The same unskillfulness that applies to somebody identifying with anxiety when they're late is the same unskillfulness with somebody being uh, mindless when they're late. Um, I think it's a mindlessness in both senses. So I'm an hour and a half late. I'm like, eh, well, who cares? It's fine. I think that is an equal amount of uh, unskillful mindlessness as somebody who's late and immediately becomes that anxiety. Uh, and I think that the answer to both is separation of self from identifying with whatever this, you know, environment or, or state of being is, and then using your mind as a tool. 
So when you don't let your thoughts sort of run the show, for example, I'm, I'm an hour and a half late and then I'm feeling anxious as a result. And then you just immediately become lost in thought and you become this anxiety and your mind's just going a million miles an hour about how everyone's going to be mad at you and, and you know, your mother-in-law's not going to talk to you now, all these different things that is unskillful and mindless. But if you become mindful of this and allow it to be, uh, I think you can then use your mind as a tool and you can acknowledge whether you're the person who's flippant or you're the person who's anxious and say that this was a wrong thing to do. I screwed up and here's how I can remedy this in the future. And I don't think that uh, sort of, I can't remember, a negative, negative response psychology is necessary for you to learn or acknowledge that, at least for most people, maybe for children, but for people who are um, adults. I, I don't think that you need to punish yourself in order to learn how to not be late for something. I think it's very clear that, oh, wow, I just lost my job because I wasn't there for the eighth time in a row. You know, that doesn't require you beating yourself up over it every second of the day, in my opinion. I'm not sure. but I think that I agree with you on most of what you said in that I th your comment regarding it is equally unskillful to be stressed and be flippant, I think is true. At the same time, I do believe that the, the, the reaction which we have, either psychological or physical, is a built-in mechanism to help individuals uh, cohere to a social structure. And that feeling of guilt or that feeling of self-judgment is in some form necessary to help a society function. So I think there's a distinction to be made there. So that feeling of guilt when you're late is very useful, I would agree. If you feel good about being late, you're not going to be a functioning member of society. But identifying yourself with that feeling, I think, is where the unskillfulness takes takes hold. So you can you can acknowledge that there is there is this bad feeling and then not become that bad feeling. And and let me see if I can make an analogy here. I think I understand what you're saying, but does that feeling still have an effect? Sure, I think in the same way that uh, grief has an effect or um, love or compassion or any of these other feelings that we have that they may come and go in our lives and we're not holding on to them and becoming them and identifying ourselves with them and fearing that when they go, we go. Um, I think all of those things can still be true and have an effect. Hmm. I think that they can have a effect. I don't know if they, they can have the same effect. So the overall kind of topic of our conversation today was uh, we both believe in a relatively in we both believe that the truest form of reality as we understand it doesn't have a meaning an ultimate meaning ascribed to it in in the way you so eloquently put it there may be uh, quantitative truths but mm -hmm. there probably aren't very many qualitative truths out there did I say that yeah you did wow. at least I've been quoting you saying that wow. All right. I well. thought it was pretty good and 
That's not the first time it's happened where I say something relatively profound and immediately forget that I said it. It happens to me on a very regular basis. Yeah. When, when we look at um, reality, we then have to kind of cope with that existence. We have to cope with the no quantity or the no qualitative truths. And in it's interesting, I think that both of us over the last month or so, from having a conversation about that, have in different ways found deeper ways to cope with it. I think that I had been experiencing it longer than than you had in my my experience was just like um, that of with determinism of allowing this to be true and just kind of not allow, like um, knowing that this is true but choosing to function in a different way. Whatever yeah. comes up, just going yes, that is true. However, I'm not going to follow follow that along. So with other people who are where you were several weeks ago, um, maybe more than four weeks ago, but where somebody is maybe for the, one of the first times really coming to this understanding that there isn't an absolute meaning to life, yeah. that there isn't a guiding principle or an ethical standard or uh, a meaning or a purpose to their life, what words would you give to them as they start this, what will truly be a very painful journey yeah. uh, towards change? I would say that the the natural or instinctual response is depression and often suicidal depression. And I would say that the decision to take your life or end this existence is as equally as baseless as continuing or as, as not continuing it, you know? So life or death are equally as baseless. So uh, I think that's what I tried to leave off last episode with maybe just didn't understand the context of what I was even saying, which is that we didn't pick to be alive. Being alive is baseless, but being dead is also is equally valueless. So, um, I think that being alive is more worthwhile. Um, and as for the rest of the journey, find yourself a Spencer Field. <laughs> Read The Power of Now. Which was a really good book. Yeah, it was. Um, anything that I've said over this podcast is that had any merit whatsoever as a result of that book. Um. I, I don't know that I can be of any service to anyone. I'm barely figuring this out moment to moment. And uh, to all the listeners out there, I guess, all seven of you. <laughs> this is the end of the podcast. This is the end of the podcast. All, all iTunes RSS feed bot. Seriously. Um, you know, I figured out a way to, to keep breathing. Um I would recommend you to do the same as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Blacklist Remarks. I'm Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field. Signing off.